Welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast, your weekly source for questions and answers around equity in yoga, hosted by Jeevana Heyman and Amber Carnes. Join us each week for powerful conversations with thought leaders at the intersection of justice, knowledge, and practice. Welcome to episode 31. I'm your host, Amber Carnes. In this episode, Jeevana and I sit down to answer questions submitted by our listeners, that's you, and our community. And in this episode, this Q&A episode, we will discuss how how the practice can support mental health treatment in a responsible and ethical way, our scope of practice as yoga teachers, the importance of collaboration in our communities, as well as a question about exploring the practice while experiencing vertigo. Hopefully this is useful to y'all. If you'd like to submit a question for the podcast, we'd love to hear it. You can go to accessibleyogatraining.com slash podcast to submit a question or a topic. Here we go. Hey, Jeevana, how's it going? Hi. Hi, Amber. Um, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's good to good to hear your voice. Talk mm. to you again. You too. Yeah. Well, we got some questions this week from uh, listeners and readers, and so I figure I'd just jump right in unless you want to chat about something first. Um, no, just that um, I love questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, y'all keep them coming. We have a, a, a form on our podcast page over at AccessibleYogaTraining.com. If you click on the podcast, you'll see right at the top that you can ask a question or suggest a guest you like us to interview or suggest a topic that you want to hear us run our mouths about. <laughs> We're always looking for suggestions. So uh, leave us questions. We love it. So we'll jump right in, though. Um, I'm just going to read uh, this question that came in. So Yoga is not a replacement for psychotherapy. That said, psychotherapy is not accessible to so many people for myriad reasons. Yoga is a great adjunct to psychotherapy, but I am troubled by some offerings I have seen from yoga teachers focusing on very specific mental health issues. I wonder where they are going with the offering and are they really equipped to deal with what might come up? I was a psychiatric nurse for most of my 44 year nursing career. I once got a group of teenage boys on an inpatient unit to practice yoga with me. It was probably sort of a prenatal type class because that was the only yoga I knew at the time. <laughs> I guess what I'm asking you to talk about is the intersection of yoga and mental health treatment and what are non-harmful, helpful ways for yogis to use the practice and teachers to offer practices for folks who are trying to manage their health. Thanks. Ah, that is such a good question. Oh my gosh. It really gosh. is. You I want to jump that. in first? I mean, I have so many thoughts about that. I mean, I think what comes up for me first is just to talk about um, scope of practice of yoga teachers. I think that's part of what that question is getting at. You know, scope of practice is something that we've been hearing a little bit more about the last few years, but I think it's worth repeating that, um, Yoga teachers, we actually haven't had a clear scope of practice until, well, recently Yoga Alliance released one. If you are um, interested in what Yoga Alliance does, they they have a scope of practice now for yoga teachers. And, and it really, what that means, it's like the, um, kind of like the professional area that you're trained in. Like, um, do you know what I mean? Like in the medical world, a scope of practice is used for like a a medical doctor versus a psychiatrist. Like if you have a, um, right. right. If you're going to the psychiatrist and you're like, I broke my arm, that psychiatrist will be like, I can't help you with that. That's not within my scope of practice. Um, and I think yoga teachers have been confused, you know, for good reason actually about their scope of practice, especially around this issue around, um, mental health. Don't you think? Don't you think? Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a lot of, um, 
you know, maybe a lot of students come to us for things that seem or that are adjacent to like mental health stuff, right? Folks want to reduce stress. Folks want to learn how to, you know, work with their thoughts and emotions. A lot of folks are dealing with anxiety and depression and other things that they've heard like yoga is good for this. And so I think it's really important that we be aware of our scope of practice. We'll link to the Yoga Alliance um, scope of practice document in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I think having boundaries around this is really important because as yoga teachers, you know, we aren't, we aren't doctors, we aren't mm -hmm. nutritionists, we aren't dietitians, we aren't, we aren't a lot of things. Uh, we aren't here to diagnose or to treat. And so I think it's really important that we do be clear about um, how we can help. And I think there are a lot of ways that yoga teachers can help, but that's different from how a therapist or a counselor or yeah. a doctor might be able to help. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, part of it is just having humility, like realizing that you're not trained in, in those ways and to not make claims about your work. I think I think working in collaboration, I mean, well, I see a few different things we can do. One, one is to work in collaboration. So like if you have uh, an interest right. in working with people who have mental health issues, like find other professionals in that area um, and collaborate in some way with them. It might mean like, like this person was saying, teaching at an inpatient unit. That's like a great idea. Like yoga is such a great um, complement to so many types of treatment for mental health issues. <clears throat> or, or just have a good um, referral network. So like say that you're just teaching in the community and you want to talk about yoga for mental health in your classes, be sure that you actually have professionals that you can refer people to. So if someone then comes to you after class and is like, well, I really appreciate, appreciate you mentioning anxiety in class today, you know, and I have, I'm having anxiety, you should be able to say to that person, well, I'm not a therapist or a psychiatrist or whatever, but you know, here's some names or here's a website you can go to find someone in the area. Like it's nice to help people find the help they need. Like that's a way we can help. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. And, you know, I think that there's, um, there's a difference between, you know, sharing practices that maybe have helped us, you know, you mm -hmm. and I have both talked on the podcast about how we've struggled with anxiety or yeah. depression or whatever, yeah. and different parts of the practice that have, you know, really helped us the stuff that helps down re regulate your nervous system are, you know, amazing practices to offer our students. And we got to be really mm -hmm. clear that like, offering practices that have helped me personally, or have helped other students, um, is different than now I'm, you know, working with you to treat your anxiety yeah. or something like that. I think it's really important that we, um, I like that you said, you know, have your referrals ready so that we can know like when it's appropriate for us to work with someone and when it's appropriate to refer out. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's what this person's asking. And I think that, I think I agree with them that, it can, it's a little troublesome to see teachers make specific offerings in areas that they may not be trained to deal with. So like, I would be a little hesitant to do that myself, like to do a specific offering focusing on like yoga for blank condition. Right. With just, with, just as a yoga teacher, I don't know if that's really appropriate, but um, you could collaborate with a mental health professional. Like you could offer a workshop where there's, you're teaching yoga and you have someone who actually does have that training talking about that piece or something you know what i mean like there's ways to work together and i feel like that's where we get stuck we try to do it all ourselves and i have one other thought which is to me this just reminds me of questions around um, trauma and um, dealing with 
you, you know, we, we talk in, in the accessible yoga training, I talk a lot about trauma-informed teaching and that all yoga teachers should be trained uh, to be trauma-informed. That That's different than treating trauma. And I think that's a really important difference, right? right? Like if someone comes to me who has like a diagnosed, um, you know, PTSD or other kind of, um, you know, psychological issue, I'm not going to try to treat that person. That's diff- That's not trauma-informed teaching. Like that person needs to work with a yoga therapist or a psychiatrist or someone who has training. And well, I am actually a yoga therapist, but I still probably wouldn't work. <laughs> I wouldn't work with them. I mean, like I would definitely refer them to someone who's focused in that area. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, what I'm saying is that's not the same as trauma-informed teaching, which is just this idea that we all need to be sensitive to the fact that the majority of the population has had some kind of trauma. Like it's two different things. A diagnosis is different than actually just being aware of something. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think that even though like we're talking about scope of practice and knowing like what's appropriate for you to, you know, treat versus offer, you know, things that might be helpful. um, I think that if you're going to be talking about things like mental health or trauma in your offerings, right? We, you know, this was about, uh, the question was about, cause they see yoga teachers offering things, maybe like yoga for anxiety or yoga for depression or yoga for trauma. And so I think if you're going to offer a program that's called yoga for something, you ought to have some sort of specialized training or qualification or whatever. Otherwise, you know, it's not like as a yoga teacher without, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I may be working with folks that have anxiety. So if I'm going to, in my class description, talk about anxiety or say something about how we're going to be working with anxiety, I would more want to write like maybe that I've personally struggled with anxiety and we'll be exploring some practices that have been helpful to me or, you know, something like that where folks can read the class description and very clearly understand like, are you a certified mental health professional in some capacity that's, like you said, treating something like trauma or a diagnosis? Or are you, you know, offering practices that maybe are broadly applicable and broadly can help a lot of different people to downregulate the nervous system? And so I think it's not um, black and white where you can't offer things that might be helpful, but I think we just have to be really clear um, to our students and also just as we write descriptions for our mm-hmm. offerings and stuff like that, like where we stand in relation to yeah. treating, diagnosing. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and I, w- I think yoga for anxiety is different than like yoga and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where that might be a program where we, we talk about that and we provide some, you know, community, some spaces for people to be heard. We, you know, we explore things that might've helped us. But that's different than saying, like, I am, you know, qualified to, like, help you treat and work with your anxiety. Right. So. And, and I guess I would say, again, it maybe bring in that collaboration where it's like, this is yoga and anxiety. And maybe I don't bring in someone into that class, a medical professional, but maybe I say, like, um, make some kind of disclaimer in the marketing of the course or it, when I'm teaching and say, like, I, you know, I... This is not a substitute for medical advice. And I really recommend if you have concerns about this, that you seek, you know, some other support for this, that you find the correct amount of support that you need and that I'm, this isn't it. Like, I think that's part of the problem is like 
putting yourself out there in a way where it looks like you're um, offering medical advice or medical treatment. And even if it's perceived that way, because it's not like, I mean, yoga is amazing, right? Yoga is incredibly powerful mm-hmm. and it can have a huge impact. But I think there's a, just a danger in putting yourself out in that way. Um, because I think it's just not, it's not ethical. <laughs> it's just not ethical. Yeah. You know, so you need to make sure, like I would often, you know, I taught, you know, my classes are always for people with different disabilities, in- including mental health issues. And I w- if anyone spoke to me, I would always ask them just, you know, do you have the support you need? Like, do you, yeah. you know, do you, are you, you know, do you need to look at your system that you have set up for yourself and how you can make that stronger so that yoga is just like this additional form of support for you, which is incredibly beneficial um, as a complement to whatever else you're doing. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, part of that I would say is, um, uh, well, my friend Diane Bondi likes to say verbalize to normalize. And I think, you know, talking to folks about like, what support systems do you have, uh, you know, in place to support your mental health helps to destigmatize, you know, getting help or having support for mental health in the first place, which I think is something that I see in here a lot in yeah. sort of like the wellness world or the, you know, if you live like a natural lifestyle or sort of all these sort of, I don't know, adjacent to yoga things that I've seen a lot of stigma around mental health in like the spiritual and wellness communities sort of like, well, if your practice mm-hmm. was strong enough, maybe mm-hmm. you wouldn't need mm-hmm. medication or maybe you wouldn't need therapy or whatever. Oh. And I think that is like, that's a form of spiritual bypass in my opinion. And I think it's really harmful to, um, to say that like some folks, you know, to stigmatize mental health support. And so I think having a conversation with your students about this from, you know, the place of, wanting to offer support of being really clear about your boundaries and your scope of practice, but also that like just having that conversation might be what someone needs to feel like it's okay for them to get additional support beyond, you know, yeah. their yoga practice or their spiritual practice or whatever. I mean, it's so important what you just said. It, it, it's, again, it's unethical in my mind to, to stigmatize medications of any kind, um, whether they are for, physical health issues or mental health issues. I mean, the fact that that's done so much in our, uh, in the yoga community is really upsetting to me. Like there's, we need to use everything we have access to. We can use all the things, you know, like you can use um, medication and you can use herbs and you can use yoga and you can go to therapy. You can do all the things or not, or you can pick the one of those that you like, but it's always a choice for the person to decide what they want to do for themselves. It's never, it's never for a yoga teacher to say, and even a yoga therapist for that matter, to say what someone should do um, in terms of, of their own personal treatment, especially if there's a diagnosed condition that is just, it's it's dangerous. It's really dangerous. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think just to echo what you just said, though, to say that, oh, just if you were doing better, like if you're a better yogi, then you wouldn't have this problem. It's just such a load of crap. Yeah. For sure. And I think especially from sort of a yogic perspective is that like maybe, you know, practitioners of yoga understand a little bit better than dominant culture that like the mind and the body are not separate. You know, we don't have physical health and mental health because like the mind is part of the body. (laughs) Right. And so like we, I think uh, as yoga practitioners understand that the two are very intertwined. And so to me, it's even a 
another layer of like, what? When, you know, yoga teachers (laughs) stigmatize getting treatment for mental health because Uh, we understand how much the body and the mind are um, intertwined and interconnected. Yeah, and actually a yoga practice may, may help someone. It actually could exacerbate a problem. So just be aware that yoga doesn't always make something better. Just like you could have an injury if you like overstretch or something in a pose, you could also cause emotional or mental health harm in your class, not on purpose. I'm sure yoga teachers don't mean to cause harm, but I'm just saying that whatever practice you think might be helping someone, it may actually cause problems. There's people who, um, for example, meditation is contraindicated in certain um, conditions. Like if if you're in a clinical depression, then doing silent meditation is not a good idea. So I would say just like, or like if you're having anxiety, if you have severe anxiety, doing pranayama and controlling your breath is contraindicated. So there's there's like a sensitivity to those things that we may just not be aware of too, that yoga can also, it can help, but it can also harm. And, and I think that's that's the main reason I would say, just stop making claims about it. And, and if you do make claims, make sure they're personal, like you said, just sharing that, oh, well, this is something that helped me or this is a potential benefit of this practice. This this practice may benefit you by calming your nervous system, but it may not. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> yeah, and I, I love, you know, saying that stuff out loud, I think is important, not only to like teach in a trauma-informed way, right? Like if we're offering a breathing practice or something that might be contraindicated, you know, having another practice that folks could access, but mm-hmm. also um, just to normalize that, not everyone is gonna, not all practices like affect each person the same way. And so like, if you're that person, that's very maybe like fidgety and Shavasana because it doesn't feel safe for you to lay there quietly Mm -hmm. with your eyes closed, you know, like yoga teachers, I think can really normalize that like, not, Mm -hmm. not everything feels relaxing Mm -hmm. to everyone that's sort of like supposed to be relaxing. And so that that just goes back to that verbalize to normalize thing that I think we can we can give really a gift to our students of allowing them to have the permission to like take care of themselves in the way they need to. And sometimes it just takes like saying that out loud that mm-hmm. like, hey, yeah, this might not feel restful for everyone. If lying on your back doesn't feel good, turn on your side, lay on your belly, yeah. sit against the wall. You know, so I think um, not only knowing your scope of practice, but even when we, I think, suggest these things that might be helpful for folks experiencing an activated nervous system or something like that, just saying uh, saying some of this out loud, I think, can can really help. I love that. I mean, I, I think that's that's a big part of both of our teaching, which is to kind of change the the conversation that's happening in a yoga class, stop being so top down all the time and really to empower students or share power, I think is a better way to Mm -hmm. say it, you know, share power with students so that they feel um, like they have a choice and they can decide that if something doesn't feel right, they can stop or do it differently. And I think, I mean, we want to keep them safe, but that's a way we could actually keep them safer is by helping people to be more sensitive to their experience and responding to that in the moment. Um, I know for myself that, you know, for many years, I would just do what the teacher said and I got injured many times and it's taken me years and years. I'm still learning um, mm-hmm. about how to care for myself uh, with with these practices. And it's, it's an ongoing process. Um, so, yeah, anyway, this is uh, this is such a great question. Like, I just feel like this this question really touches on so many of the 
issues I think we're seeing in yoga. Um, so thank you to whoever asked. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for asking that yeah. question. All right, so on to the next one. Um, this one's about vertigo. There are times when I cannot bend at certain angles or hang upside down because I have bad vertigo. I usually just don't do yoga when I'm in an episode, but some of your suggestions already work for me to access certain poses without compromising inner ear. I'm asking if you have any additional suggestions for poses that could work to access certain stretches and strengthening exercises when you can't be upside down or look in certain directions while on the ground. So I think the basis of this question is basically, if I can't go upside down, how do I get the upside down benefits? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I know you have ideas about this. Yeah, this is a great question too, because I think um, vertigo is pretty common. There's different causes and I don't, I mean, I don't really know them all, but I would just say it's not, it's not uncommon that people feel dizzy or lightheaded. You know, it's, it's, it can be, or not, or it can turn into nausea where you actually feel really nauseated by um, vertigo and it can be debilitating. Um, I've had many students with different kinds of vertigo. Um, I remember one time I had a student who was a professional dancer. And so you can imagine how flexible she was. Like she had, you know, like she could do anything with her body that she wanted, but she had vertigo. Right. And so it was like, I was trying to help her create a practice that <clears throat> helped her move her body, but didn't bring on that vertigo. And it had exactly what the person's saying. It was like usually not bending their head down or moving it quickly side to side, not being inverted. <clears throat> so it's challenging to kind of keep your head upright and do a practice. But I think, um, I think creativity is the key. That's what I would say is like, be creative and kind of let go of maybe some of the ideas you have about what yoga should look like and, and focus on how it feels, you know, what do you think? Yeah. Um, well, my suggestion was um, to slow things down. Mm. I know from talking with folks, um, and it depends on what you have going on and I guess what kind of vertigo and how severe it is and, and many factors. But um, from speaking with some folks that have struggled with this, uh, kind of two things. A, slow down um, because changing, you know, maybe bringing your head below your heart or like whatever uh, – point it comes to that the vertigo kind of kicks on. I think um, I've talked to folks who, if they are going slow, that they can go actually like, mm. let's say a little deeper into a forward bend or something like that, as long as it's not like the sort of one breath, one movement pace of a sun salutation, if that yeah. makes sense. So really taking your time uh, to come into and go out of postures um, is helpful. And then I would also say, you know, change your um, orientation a little bit. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you're doing something like a sun salutation where there's a lot of up and down, up and down off the floor, maybe instead of going to the floor, you would use a wall or the back of a chair, right? So now you have a new floor, quote unquote, <laughs> to interact with. And you could do, for example, a, a forward bend at the wall that's a little bit, um, maybe you're not taking your, your head all the way towards the floor. Maybe instead it's going to be at shoulder height or something like that, where you could start to work with the same poses and the same energy, but not go down as low, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, so like actually, that, are you talking about yeah, like a wall sun salutation? Because I think that's a great idea yeah. that, you know, the yeah. wall sun salutation where you, you're really never bringing the head below the heart and, um, you're not bringing the hands to the floor. You're using the wall kind of as the floor. Um, 
there's one, I have it in my book and I also have it in a article I wrote for Yoga International. I don't know if you've done a well sense citation people can access, but maybe we could link it here. It's it's really a, such a great practice. Yeah, we'll put a video in the show notes so that folks yeah. can see what we're talking about. And and I would say like be creative in the way that you think. Like if you're, you know, uh, if let's pretend that you couldn't get up and down off the floor, you know, could you still do something like a sun salutation? Of course. Like you could take it to the wall, you could go to a chair. And so I would say for the the poses that maybe you're not able to access when you're in the middle of an episode, let's say if you're used to doing a, a full inversion, like a, a headstand or a shoulder stand or something where you actually are upside down, I would go back to the question that we encourage um, everyone to ask is like, what is the point of this pose or practice? Like, what is the essence of what we're trying to do here? So for something like an inversion, you know, there are a couple of qualities to inversions. Your head's below your heart. You get to, you know, drain uh, like venous blood and lymph out of the legs. You know, there's a lot of thing, like attributes to a pose like that. And so I would ask, like, how could I bring some of those back in if I'm not going upside down? Mm-hmm. So maybe if elevating the legs is what we want, yeah. you know, then we're going to sit in a chair and maybe put the feet up onto the wall in front of us or another chair where we could get some elevation under the legs, but not have to go upside down. Mm-hmm. So thinking about like, what are the attributes of, of that pose or practice that you feel like you cannot access right now? Um, and a little bit of Googling can help if you're not sure. Um, or if you're a teacher, you know, going back to like, what are we trying to accomplish with this pose and how could we find it in another shape? Yeah. Well, of course, that's what we do in the accessible yoga training a lot. And I think, um, it's really fun. You know, it can be fun and it, it can be a fun challenge to really do that, to really look at how can I get the benefits of these practices without um, having the problem that I'm having. Because actually I'll say that you have to weigh, you have to kind of weigh this. Sometimes we really push ourselves. We think that this traditional form of a pose is somehow superior and that if I do it, I'll get some amazing benefit that I'm not going to get in this adapted form. And it's just not true. Like if there's, especially if there's some harm that comes to you, like, like if you end up um, having vertigo because of it, it's just not worth it. So I think it's other than the great advice you're giving, I would just say like to really encourage everyone to like find a way to adapt the practice that works for them, that you can avoid hurting yourself, um, right. whatever that may look like. You know, if you find that like one particular practice causes a problem for you, like I remember I, I used to do um, cobra pose, you know, Bhujangasana in such a way that I would end up, I'd always have a headache the next day after I practiced. And it took me like a, a year, at least I would say more than a year to finally realize that the way I was bringing my head back in cobra was like pinching the back of my neck. And that was giving me a mm. headache the next day. And it like, even though I, I like did it over and over because that's the way I'd been trained. And I just thought, what, mm-hmm. am, what am I doing? Like, why can't I take care of myself? And I think that's, that's what yoga is really about is finding a practice that actually makes me feel better. And, and I would say like challenges are good too. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying easy. You know what I mean? Right. Right. There's a difference between challenging and hurting yourself. And that's what we got to find. That's the balance we got to find. That's right. And I think, you know, just keeping an eye on like, you know, I, 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 I don't think this is the behind this question, but sort of um, I know a lot of folks are like, well, if I can't do inversions, then like, 
is it worth it uh, to still practice uh, or yeah. am I still doing the real yoga if I can't make these shapes? And hopefully everyone listening to this podcast knows that, <laughs> you know, we, we think you can still get into yoga heaven, even if you don't do shoulder stand <laughs> or whatever it is. Right. But I think like, you know, come back to that question of like, why are we practicing asana in the first place? And, you know, part of that, like you said, is, is being able to meet ourselves where we are and be, and do, you know, practice ahimsa, basically. Like, it's not um, really fair to, uh, like, beat yourself up for a posture or a practice that you're not able to do because of, you know, a physical limitation you might have or an illness you're dealing with or an injury or something like that. And so I think we really have to, you know, practice ahimsa in sort of a, a proactive way of, being honest with ourselves about what our bodies, what's supportive for our bodies and what our bodies can actually do on any given day, knowing that that changes right day to day and throughout the seasons of our lives. So I think we just have to be a little more um, flexible yeah. um, with our practice so that it can be a sustainable part of our lives as we move forward. Um, and that means we might not always have the same abilities that we once had or that that might change. And so... I think a little bit of the off the mat practice we can do around this is being honest about uh, what is supportive for our body and making sure that we're we're checking against ahimsa to make sure we're offering like those practices and it might not always look the same. Yeah, so. there you go, ahimsa. Hmm. Okay. Thanks. All right, so great question. Yeah, thanks for that question. And then um, I think the the final question that we'll sit with um, is. Just something that I've been seeing in different groups and we've been getting this question in different forms, but is it really around the, um, like, should politics and yoga mix? You know, I've seen, we've we've talked about this on the, po on the podcast before, but I think um, it's worth addressing again just because it's coming up so much yeah. lately, oh, especially oh. since, you know, January 6th and surrounding the inauguration and all of that. So, um yeah, let's chat about this. Does politics belong in yoga? Yeah, you thank know? you. I, I'm slightly <laughs> obsessed with that question. I I'm just wrote a blog about it, which probably the blog will probably come out before this episode. So I'm curious if um, maybe we can link to it. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll and I'm I've been thinking about it a lot actually about this issue, and I, I would say that this is what's been on my mind. I, I feel like. Um, Actually, and it came up for me just now in this last question, too, around adapting asana. I think there's a lot of confusion around the history of yoga. Um, I, I just interviewed this guy, Daniel Simpson, who wrote The Truth of Yoga. And I think that episode, that may come out after this as well. But I would really um, encourage people to check out that book, The Truth of Yoga by Daniel Simpson, and and listen to that episode when it comes out. And, um, you know, he really gives like an overview of the history of the practice in a really concise way. It's like a small paperback. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, right. and he's like a he was a New York Times reporter. So he knows how to like consolidate information. And I was like so grateful for that because the history of yoga is is long and confusing. And one of the things that he really helped me see in that book was the kind of the the monastic in, uh, tradition of yoga. The, that yoga for hmm. literally uh, thousands of years was for monks. For mostly male monks, and and really only recently has that been changing. And um, although in the in their tradition there was also a path for householders, 
<clears throat> and householders had a very different path than monks. You know, monks would take a vow of celibacy and poverty and a vow of non-attachment. So I th- the point I'm trying to make is I think that there's been some confusion um, in modern yoga that we want to be traditional. So we look back to the past and we use these teachings from ancient yoga, which I do all the time. But we have to be we have to translate those teachings not only to our contemporary lives, but also to the fact that we're not monks. <laughs> you know, we are mm-hmm. we are householders. And literally a householder by definition is someone who is engaged in society. Uh, I mean, that's the difference between those two things. A monk is someone who literally is not engaged in society. That that person has consciously chosen to leave society to focus only on their spiritual practice. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that is a conscious choice that person makes. They are prioritizing their spiritual practice and they might physically leave society or not. They might be in society, but have chosen not to have relationships. You know, that's what the monk is doing. Now, a householder is not doing that. They are in society. They're living their life. They're having relationships, having family, probably having engaged with business and all of that those aspects of society are governed by politics. I mean, that's what politics is. That's the the world of um, making rules and laws that then impact our daily lives and and create the structure of society that we're living in. So to me, it's like, like the point I'm trying to make in a very long way is to say that if you're a monk, sure, you can say that your yoga is not about politics. If you want to say that, <laughs> I, I'll give that to you. I really will. But if you're not a monk, I, I don't buy that argument at all. You know, I don't know what you're talking yeah. about, because if you're not a monk, you are by nature engaged in politics because you're living in society and you're having relationships with people. And I know my relationships are really, really impacted by politics. For example, um, you know, I'm a gay man and my husband and I, we've been together for uh, just 28 years now, actually, um, which is a really long time. And we could only legally marry about six years ago. And so that's a good example of how politics and the, the rules around gay marriage, um, the laws around that have impacted my life. It impacted the way that we structured our finances. Even though we'd had children together, we still weren't married. We had to go and spend a lot of money for a lawyer to create special wills for us that would protect our kids since we couldn't be legally married when they were born. So, I mean, there was there were really specific um, implications to laws on on my personal life. And I think that as a yoga practitioner, I couldn't help but see that. I couldn't help but respond to that in my practice. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I could talk more about that too, but maybe I'll pause for a moment and see what you think. What do you think about that idea of the monastic versus householder path in yoga? I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, it's important to contextualize like what we're reading and what we're learning about yoga through, you know, the lens of the teachings and the context of who the teachings, you know, were intended for and who um, and and the context of like when this stuff was put down into the yoga sutras or whatever um, that that is that that audience and intent was a little bit different than, you know, like you said, as householders, like us doing our, our practice. And so I don't know, for me, this question, um, kind of comes down to like, what is yoga all about? 
um, before I can answer, like, does politics belong there? And my understanding of this practice is that, um, you know, it's about this journey of like turning our attention towards ourselves so that we can remember who we are. You know, yoga talks about this misidentification that we've like, we've misidentified and we think we're our body or we think we're our bank account or that we're our relationships or we're our job or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Dominant culture has taught us this very like, um, that our worth is equated with our productivity or our health or our age or our beauty. And so yoga is about that journey of like reuniting the fact that we are not uh, or remembering the fact that we're not those things and remembering the truth of who we are, which is, you know, spirit and or soul, Atman, whatever you want to refer to it as. And I kind of think about it as like our humanity, like that shared lived experience of what it means to be alive and to be human. And I think that once you, you know, that there's a danger that the the yoga journey can kind of be all about self, right? And that it's about uh, self-awareness or sort of like yeah. navel gazing and going exactly. inward and then never going back outward. But I think, you know, what you write about and then what I understand from, you know, the teachings is not that yoga is, the point of this practice is not so we can like become self-obsessed, it's about recognizing that humanity and that um, spark of divinity that we recognize in ourselves and then turning that gaze to the world and re recognizing that, you know, this is a practice of liberation and that none of us are, you know, that was that quote, none of us is free until we're all free, mm -hmm. you know, that like our liberation is bound up together with one another. And that if we can actually make that, you know, re-identification with spirit, with our unchanging, you know, worth and um, inherent worth that we have as human beings, then I don't know, it's really hard for me to buy into all the stuff about ahimsa and satya and our interconnectedness and all of that that's part of the yoga teachings and not want to actually go out and make the world a better place for my neighbors that don't have the same privileges or the same um, opportunities that I have. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. There. I love it. And I, I, you know, that's exactly what I feel. I, I think... I think something, something you said is really important, going in and going out. And um, <clears throat> I, I think maybe when we spoke earlier, I, I've, I've used the image of a wave before, this kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, we, we turn inward, like the, the wave pulls back into the ocean and we do our practice and then the wave comes back onto the shore. And it's just like, that's how we reach out into the world. And that's, that's, how, li that's how life is. Like, you know, we, you can spend time in your practice, but then you have to go and be in the world. You're going to have relationships with people you're going to um be interacting with others how does your practice um change the way that you do that how does your practice mm -hmm. make you um, engage in the world in a yogic way and i think that's i think that's kind of what you're saying is like yoga well it's, it's a cliche taking yoga off the mat but i think it's really true that the practice doesn't end when you're finished with your asanas or your meditation that's really where it begins. It begins when you are challenged. You know, that's right. When something bad happens to you and you get upset, what do you do? Like when I, you know, I think a lot about my my husband and how um, and our relationship and how it's so easy to 
take things out on the people closest to us. And, you know, if he says something just the wrong way and I'll just respond and get angry and then whatever. But the question is, did I, am I responding because I was already in pain? Like, am I upset and then I'm taking it out on him? Am I reflecting back to him something that he's actually showing me? Is he taking his stuff out on me? Like the more I can see myself clearly, um, the, the healthier I can be in my relationships and actually the less harm I will cause in the world. And I think that's the other piece It's like, even if you don't want to be generous about um, serving other people, you know, if you don't want to focus on that part of yoga, at least do no harm. And I think that's the other way. And is to think of your practice as a way of reducing the negative impact you're having on the world. Um, maybe by unconsciously taking your crap out on other people, mm. um, because at least be a source of, of neutrality and calm in the world uh, rather than inciting more problems. You know, like you can just see that. You can see the way that some people go into the world and like make things harder for everyone and other people that go into the world and actually make it more like, easier to be around them and easier to um, be yourself. And I think that's yoga is like a really dealing with your own stuff so that you can give other people space to be themselves. Um, that That's what I work on is kind of like this, I don't know what the word is, like um, this loving compassion, but that is also engaged in the world. Um, that's the other piece I would well, say. Well, I think Go you're ahead. talking about monitoring not, or yeah. modeling uh, non-attachment, yeah. right? That like non-attachment isn't just about, you know, not being attached to your nice car or your house or whatever, right? It's also about outcomes and relationships. And I think what you're talking about is basically like being able to separate and like to love people and to want the best for them um, and be fully invested in the way that you show up in relationship, but kind of hold those, the results loosely. I don't know if that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Resonates with what you're saying. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard, you know, I think, we, we kind of want things to be a certain way and it gets frustrating when they're not, you know, it's like, and I think this is where the question of politics gets confusing because you could approach politics in a way that's not yoga. You know, you could approach it in a way where it's, you're just have an attachment, you know, you just want a certain thing and maybe you're selfishly motivated to get that thing. That's mm -hmm. not really what we're talking about. I think bringing yoga into politics to me means bringing in, um, like you said, care for other people, like wanting to your neighbor to have what they're lacking or, you know, to feel like things should be fair in the world for there to be justice. Yeah. You know, social justice. And, yeah. And I think, you know, um, maybe just to wrap this up, like, I think we can look toward uh, the Bhagavad Gita for some inspiration around this, right? Like Arjuna, you know, was sort of in this place where I don't know. He didn't want to get involved in politics. Mm. <laughs> he didn't want to get involved in this fight where he literally had to go fight his family members who were, you know, to protect what was right and to do his sacred duty. And, you know, Krishna like told him, no, you can't just lay there and throw a fit. Like this is about action, like skilled action, right? Yoga is about action. And, and I think about, you know, setting th things right, that Arjuna had this sacred duty that he had to go into the world and make it a place where it could be, where things could be fair, where justice could be done, like you said. And um, 
You know, I think back to uh, a question that uh, Rachel Knowles asked um, at the Accessible Yoga Conference last year in St. or I guess 2019 Mm -hmm. in St. Louis um, when she was teaching about the Gita. And it was like, if the, you know, if the battle is is here, what kind of warrior do you want to be? And I, I love that question. Like if we are, you know, stepping into our dharma, our duty and it's time to get involved in politics, like what kind of word do you want to be? Mm. You know, what is what is important to you? What what cause do you want to work on? How do you want to be involved in justice? And I think use your practice to help bring about that justice, not just, um, I don't know, like vibrate away the bad feelings because it's uncomfortable to get involved in politics or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Actually, and the thing, you know, I just would... I would qualify that slightly, which is to say that I I don't think the Gita is defining, um, saying we should have a religious war. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's a danger in that, but I do think what it's saying is that. (laughs) Thank you for. Yeah, no, but I do think what it's saying is that we are always acting. And and Krishna says that there's never a time that you're not acting. And so if you're, if you're imagining that I'm not acting and you just aren't doing anything, that just means you're supporting the status quo. You know what I mean? So that that's a kind of action too. Yeah, the that's, absence of action is also action. Right, and that's right? political. Yeah. That's political. Yeah. And so if you want to be a yogi who just like goes into your studio and just imagines everything's great all the time and ignores politics, I mean, that's okay. If that's what you need to do for your self-care, all right. But realizing that you are making a choice and you are making a, taking a political stand. Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. Anyway, I could talk about this forever, so I'll stop. But um, I hope we get to talk (laughs) about this again because uh, it's also what my new book's about. And I'm so excited about this idea. Actually, I had one more thought. I was thinking about, um, you know, in Buddhism, there's a tradition uh, really started by Thich Nhat Hanh called engaged Buddhism. And I feel like that's what we need in yoga. We need engaged yoga. And I think that's, that's this conversation. It's like, how do we use our yoga in the world? in a way that's engaged with the world, not as a way of leaving the world. Mm-hmm. So I hope that, I think mm-hmm. that's what's happening. I see a lot of people talking about it. Um, and I feel like that's the essence of this conversation. Engaged. Yeah, I love that. Engaged. How do we use our yoga to engage with the world, not to like hide from it or leave it? Yeah. That's really beautifully said. I think we'll leave it there. Leave y'all with that question. There you go. That's good. We always yeah. leave with a question, don't we? Yeah. How are you using your practice to engage with the world rather than hide from the world? I love that. Thank you, Jeevna. Thanks, Amber. Nice talking to you. You too. Thanks, y'all, for your questions. And I hope you will submit another question uh, or suggest a topic or a guest for us over at our podcast page, accessibleyogatraining.com slash podcast. We'll see you all next week. Thanks, Jeevna. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another week of the Accessible Yoga Podcast. I'm Kelly Nicole Palmer, the producer and editor of this podcast and a trainer with the Accessible Yoga Training School. I'm feeling excited because today is the final day to register for my upcoming course, Race and Equity, Disruption as a Practice. The course is running February 24th through March 5th. Please consider joining us for this collaborative co-learning space where we focus on self-inquiry and empowered action as we all lean in to create a more equitable and sustainable world on and off the yoga mat. To learn more about my upcoming course, please visit www.accessibleyogatraining.com. If you've been thinking about engaging this work, 
Please know that we're creating a container where you can feel held, supported, and seen, as well as empowered to make the shifts not only in your practice, but in your lived experience so that you are upholding equity and access for all. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review wherever you get podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You can suggest a topic, ask a question for Amber and Jivana to answer on the podcast, or recommend a guest you'd like for us to interview. You can do all of that at AccessibleYogaTraining.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.